Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining in with us today. Thanks for connecting, tuning in, joining us online, whatever the case is. We are so glad you are here. What a great time of joining together and worshiping God as a group. It's such a powerful group expression. A lot of fun to be a part of it, and I thank you for being here uh, with us today. And now, I could never one-up Andrew and Tilly, but Bill Simpson asked me to share just a couple Really quick announcements for, for kids' life. They are looking for some help with some nursery caregivers, pre-K classroom leaders, and pre-K and nursery helpers. If you are at all interested or available for those, please see Bill Simpson after the service. Now, uh, before we jump in, I just want to give you a warning. I'm going to do something I don't normally do in a life connection. I'm going to start very hard. I'm going to go at a really difficult point. And uh, it's a little hard-hitting, and I just want to ask you, can you handle some honesty this morning? Are you able to do that? Are you going to hang with me? I, I hope you will. Um, I've been leading worship here at LifePoint for more than a decade now, and uh, God is constantly challenging me and pushing me to understand worship differently than I did the day prior. Every day is a new challenge. Every day is something different. And uh, through this process, I personally have been hit with two realizations as far as my life. And I'm gonna share them just in case they resonate with you. First, if I am living right, my strongest worship often comes out of the times when I am weakest. And that my priorities will tell the world who and what I worship. Those are two realizations that I've come to after doing this for so many years. You know, and I once thought that worship was just sort of the, the outflow of your heart, right? You get so full of God that it just, it indwells in you and it just, it just spills out of you in everything that you do, everything that you say and every experience that you have. It's just this outpouring of joyous praise. And I didn't realize that even though that's true, there's another side to worship. And it wasn't until I had been further down the journey of life and had some real lows that I understood this other side a little better. And it's a side where you are so empty and so desperate for God that you have to worship because the alternative is unthinkable. And God often uses those times, the difficult times, to fill in some of the holes in your life to maybe restore some of the hope that you've lost in your life, maybe due to a global pandemic, maybe due to a relationship that fell apart, maybe due to something else that's part of your journey. God uses those moments to change things. And it's in those moments maybe he lifted you out of a funk. It might be a time when your desperation, due to life's circumstances, the stuff swirling all around you out of your control, have led you to a place of just complete humility and honesty before God in a place where he can finally speak to you the way he wants to. Now, those two realizations are something that are for me, things that I've experienced, and maybe you agree with those or felt those in your own life. But what I really want you to hear this morning is that those two things led me to one central truth in my life, one of several, but a central truth that I will defend and I will um, stand up for and I will say is true no matter what anyone else says. It's something I believe is critical to life for everyone, to church, to community, to finding meaning, to finding purpose, and it's that we were created to worship the one true God. That's it. If you're wondering what our purpose is, why we're here, I would argue that's it. 
We were created to worship the one true God. And that's a good thing because that means that whoever is in this room and whoever is watching online or whoever may join us later on YouTube, every person that can hear this can know that they have a purpose. None of you are a mistake. None of you are by accident. You have a purpose, and every heartbeat and every breath and every creative impulse and action that you are capable of has an opportunity and a power to worship God or not. And the real question for you then is, does your life show God how much he is worth to you, or does your life inform God that other things or relationships or ideas are more important than he is. Now today I'm gonna share a passage that I hope will speak to each of us, and it's kind of long, but bear with me here as I, as I speak from the word of God from Luke 4, verses one through 13. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, I just read a whole bunch of words. But I'm gonna to try to pull in just a couple things that I feel are important in the context of worship because I, I really feel like they are. They're just that, they're important. First, did you notice how Jesus ended up in the wilderness? Now, if, you are ending, if you've ended up in a barren place in your life, a place and you're just like, man, I really don't wanna be here. I don't know how my life ended up like this. What do you tend to think? I wonder what I did wrong to end up where I am. How did I anger God to get into this wilderness? What turn did I make that got me lost? But what does it say here? It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. You know, the great theologian Bugs Bunny said that he took the wrong turn at Albuquerque, and that's how we're tending to think, but here it says something different. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. So maybe the barren places in your life, the difficult places are actually the places where the Spirit of God has led you and wants to teach you something. Hopefully that encourages you. But see, the highs and lows of life move incredibly quickly. There's a commercial series that says life comes at you fast, and it's true. See, if you flip the page back and you look at Luke chapter three, just one chapter earlier, um, you see a different picture of Jesus altogether. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and he's, he's, he's being baptized, and uh, the Holy Spirit 
descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and then the voice comes from heaven and said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. What an incredible validating moment for Jesus. All the things he's been saying have now been validated by a dove descending. That's not you know, something that happens every day and, and a voice speaking from the heavens. Are you kidding me? Jesus has gotta feel like, see, I told you. That, what an incredible moment. And then you turn the page and Jesus finds himself in a wilderness alone, led there by the Spirit. Life comes at you fast. And during this time, Jesus ate nothing. Have you ever, have you ever been hungry? No, 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 we're not talking hungry, okay? Have you ever been hungry, all right? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this goes in stages, and somehow we go from hungry to starving. Like, that's the next step. I don't really understand how that works, but it's what we say, you know, I'm starving. Uh, so you go from hungry to starving, and then you maybe get hangry. Okay, you get hangry. And then you move on from there, and all of a sudden, you go through the grocery aisle and you say, huh, spam, I could eat that. That's when you know you've gone too far, okay? Now, Jesus at this point is saying, man, the can that the spam comes in, that looks pretty tasty right now. I think I could chew that. Uh, but Jesus is hungry, all right? Jesus is in a weakened state. He is alone in a place that nobody wants to be because bad things happen in the wilderness. He is hungry, and he is going to need to fight off temptations by the best liar and manipulator in the history of, well, forever. Does that sound like a recipe for a migraine to anybody else? I mean, that's gonna be a headache, right? But it's in this space, in this wilderness, and in this state that Jesus is going to teach us an incredible lesson on worship. But let's look at the first temptation. So the, the devil comes to Jesus and he says, hey Jesus, yo, Take this stone and turn it to bread. This is a pretty straightforward temptation. Jesus is hungry. Satan tempts him to make bread. I mean, what's wrong with that, right? What if, uh, in, you know, Jesus does this? I mean, in Luke chapter two, Jesus turned water to wine, right? I mean, why not just com complete the communion supplies and, you know, make a little bread from stones, right? And, and no comments on the wafers we serve here, by the way, while I'm at it. Uh, but anyway, why not take the bread why not take the stones and turn them to bread? What would a little miracle hurt anyone? And see, here's how many, here's where many people just, they skip ahead. They want to see Jesus answer. You know, well, how's he going to rebuke the devil? How's he going to tell him off? How's he going to embarrass the devil? You know, and we move on to that. But, but let's examine that. Like, what, why not? Would that have been so wrong if Jesus turned stone into bread because he's hungry? Would, what would that violate? Why shouldn't he do that? I mean, I wish I could turn mud into coffee. I, I really wish that was one of my gifts. Um, but anyway, wh why not? Let me just ask you, how many of Jesus' miracles that you've read about or heard about or seen on TV, how many of Jesus' miracles were all about Jesus? How many of Jesus' miracles only benefited Jesus? I'll wait. I thought really hard myself, and I couldn't really come up with any. You know, I can't really remember any time that Jesus got sick, so he healed himself. Or Jesus was poor, so he turned straw into gold. You know, I, I can't remember stories of that. Because Jesus used power in ways that benefited others. He had the heart of his father. The devil was trying to use a legitimate desire. Jesus is hungry, so let's give him bread. A legitimate thing. 
But what he's actually trying to do is very subjective. He's trying to get Jesus to do something that Jesus would never do. He's trying to challenge Jesus' character to do something different. He's trying to get him to use the power of God selfishly rather than trust God to provide what Jesus needed. And the underlying story here for us is that we can't fully express to God what he is worth if we're only interested in what his power is going to do for us in the moment. See, Jesus knew that God did not bring him into the wilderness to turn stones to bread. That is not worth the spirit going through all this and leading Jesus here. That's not the goal. This little miracle is not why Jesus is here. It's not his purpose. And that's why Jesus' response is incredibly fitting. He answered that it is written that man cannot live on bread alone. Man does need bread. Jesus is not saying that you should starve yourself all the time. Man does need bread, but bread will never be enough. And Jesus knew that it's better to have God without bread than bread without God. But where do, how do we know that? Well, we look and we say, well, you know, where exactly did Jesus get this whole idea of man cannot live on bread alone? I mean, I like bread. Why can't man live on bread alone? Jesus finds this and he remembers this in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And I'm going to read this slowly. And it's because I had to read this three or four times because I actually had to say, you know, is that really in the Bible that way in that verse? Is that really there? I've read the Bible through many times and it just These two verses were never side by side, but I'm gonna read it and see if you hear the same thing that I heard. Deuteronomy 8, two through three says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness there these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you will keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Hmm. That's an impressive set of circumstances and coincidences, isn't it? I mean, we've been talking a lot about ancient Israel in the series, right? About how, you know, God kept giving them opportunities to prove themselves and to worship God and choose God and trust God and then they keep failing. And here, Jesus is gonna reflect on ancient Israel and how they were constantly walking the line between worshiping God and worshiping everything else pretty much, idols. How they were constantly tiptoeing and swaying. And here, Jesus is recalling this entire story which is very similar to the situation he is in. A situation where the ancient Israelis were led by God into the wilderness for 40 years. They were made to hunger and humbled so that God could see if they would keep his commands, all his commands. It was something that Israel often failed to do, but here Jesus is going to set the record straight and he is going to show the right way to do this. Now I love this because it says that the people of Israel were hungry. But you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't say, all right, you guys are hungry, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm gonna just zap you all with the power to turn stones into bread. How about that? That way, whenever you're hungry, you just go, boom, stone becomes bread. He could have done that, but he didn't. 
Israel's grumbling, they're complaining, oh God, we're so hungry, why'd you bring us here? God, where's our bread? We're gonna starve here. You know what Jesus does? He says, you know what, I'm not just gonna find some way to make carts of bread show up in the wilderness. Here's what I'm gonna do. He rains bread from the sky. I'm, I'm gonna bet that Israel never thought, I wonder if God could rain bread from the sky. Would you ever think that's gonna happen during the course of your day, like you walk outside this building and you just get pelted in the head by bread falling from the sky? But yet, that's what God does. He not only provided for Israel, he said, you know what? I'm gonna come at you in a way that you can't even imagine with the provision, and it's going to rain down on you and cover the stones. So Jesus is reflecting on this. He knows the whole story. He knows that he, Jesus is a child of God, and that God wouldn't bring him into the wilderness, into a barren place and not feed him. Jesus knows this. If God wanted Jesus to have food, God could send bread from the sky. Jesus doesn't need to turn stones into bread. And Jesus knows that food inspired by the devil is going to give him some serious spiritual indigestion. Because no matter how good the idea seems on the surface, there's always something negative underneath it. So that didn't work. So the devil decides, hey, I'm gonna take Jesus up. I'm gonna take him to a high place. And Jesus, I'm gonna show you all the kingdoms of the world. You know, from one corner of the world to the other, all of it, Jesus, is gonna be yours if you just fall down and worship me. Now this sounds more like a temptation, right? Until you start thinking, well, this is Jesus. I mean, he's the son of God. I mean, Satan even knows that Jesus will eventually inherit all of this anyway. So isn't Satan just kind of saying, hey, Jesus, I'll give you what you're going to get anyway? I mean, that's what I'm tempted to look at and say. And like, that doesn't seem like much of a temptation for Jesus. He's like, no, I'll pass. Uh, but what Satan's actually doing here is something much more manipulative and sneaky and behind the scenes. See, Jesus is going to inherit all that, but Satan's offering him a shortcut. Not a shortcut in time only, but a shortcut around the cross. He's saying, you know what, Jesus? God's plan to make you inherit everything is to watch you be beaten and mocked and beaten bloody and hung on a cross until dead. That's his plan. And then you get to inherit everything. How about we skip the whole messy stuff in the middle? Let's give it to you now. And now we have a temptation. Jesus is fully man. How many people here would just love to go through what Jesus did? Not me, no thanks. Satan's offering him a shortcut. Why pay that sky high price? Why endure all the pain? Why endure the death? And you're just doing that to save the people who are actually causing the pain and death. Why do that? Instead, just worship me, replace God your father with me, the devil. Obviously that's something Jesus can't and won't do, but how's he gonna respond? He responds with scripture, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where does this come from? Great, glad you asked. It's from Deuteronomy 6.13 and Deuteronomy 6 gives you all kinds of reasons why you should worship the one true God. It says that it will go well with you, meaning ancient Israel once again because we're in Deuteronomy, that it will go well with ancient Israel and that they could go and take over the good land the Lord promised to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you. Now wait a minute, what's Satan tempting Jesus with? All the stuff you see is gonna be yours. And where's Jesus coming from in Deuteronomy? 
hey, if you worship the one true God, all the land is going to be yours and I'll thrust out your enemies. Spooky. Again, ancient Israel was told this and, and ancient Israel sort of waffled and sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they failed. But Jesus is going to show what happens when you do it the right way, when you perfect the process. Jesus not only is going to worship the one true God, but he's gonna realize and show us that in return for him worshiping the one true God and doing what God commands, Satan's gonna be thrust out of the very lands he is offering Jesus. The enemy is gonna be thrust out because he was obedient and he showed that God is worthy. See, the cross, it isn't just a pathway to Jesus' death. The Romans made it a tool of crucifixion. But through Jesus, the cross is going to free people. It's going to set the land free. The cross is going to be the demise of Satan. The very thing that Satan wants to take the shortcut around is the very thing that's going to defeat him. And it's gonna restore creation to its rightful owner, the one true God, who is worthy of Jesus' worship. And I don't want us to miss this this morning because this has relevance for you and I right now. Because when Jesus asks us to take up his cross and carry it, which he does do, he isn't just asking us to take up the cross as part of his pain and his way of life and his burdens. There is some of that, there is pain, there is tough stuff that you're gonna go through. He is also asking us to pick up his victory, to carry his victory with us. That's what he's asking us to do. So this definitely didn't work for Satan. Second temptation, failure, utter failure. So he's gonna try one more time. He's gonna come to the third temptation. The devil leads Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, and he takes Jesus to the highest place on the temple, which is high. He says, look, Jesus, look at all the little people down there. They're really small, like ants. You know, but he says, hey, bet you, why don't you jump? Why don't you jump? And now Satan's gonna see, you know what, I'll, I'll beat Jesus with his own strategy. I'm gonna use some scripture on Jesus. So Satan uses some scripture, and he says, hey, Jesus, why don't you jump? Because if you do, it's written that God's gonna command his angels to lift you up in their hands so that your foot never hits a stone. Now Satan is accurately quoting Psalms here, Psalm 91, and I think it's 11, yeah, 11 through 12, a passage about God's protection for those who dwell in the shadow of the Most High, which Jesus certainly did. But to use and understand scripture correctly, you can't just know the words. You have to have the heart. And see, Satan has the words here, but he's using the heart of deception and Jesus can smell it. His real intention, Satan's real intention is to make Jesus test God's power because if he can get Jesus to get God to do a kind of cool but really kind of meaningless miracle in the middle of nowhere, if he can get Jesus to test God, he can trap Jesus because Jesus would be violating the very scripture that he's about to rebuke Satan with. Jesus is gonna respond from Deuteronomy, surprise, 6.12, which says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now that passage from Deuteronomy 6 referenced the time when ancient Israel, our best friends, ancient Israel, uh, they choose to grumble against God. Oh God, 
here we are, you know, you dragged us out of Egypt where we at least had water. You dragged us out here, and, and we're in the middle of nowhere, and God, there's, there, there's nothing, all right? There, there's, there's, there's nothing for us out here. We're gonna die of thirst because there's no water. Our house plants are dying. Our cats are getting angry. We are in the middle of nowhere. God, I bet you can't even do it, can you? But Moses, who led the Israelites at the time by the power of God, brought water from a rock and quenched the thirst of Israel. Now, I want you to notice, God accepted the test from ancient Israel. He passed the test by bringing them water. But if you read into Deuteronomy 6, you'll find out that God was not pleased and Israel paid for it heavily. He didn't like the test. He could pass the test, but he didn't like the test. That's why it says, don't. Put your Lord, your God, to the test. But Jesus, once again, he's going to show us how to overcome the trial because he's not gonna put God to the test. Instead, he's going to trust God to provide for him, even if he can't see that provision just now. And there's a couple patterns here in these temptations that are really interesting. You know, you see that Jesus uses t scripture to rebuke the devil. That's what teaching most times you hear about this passage but I also am surprised that Jesus never once puts the devil down. He could, Satan, you're a liar, you're the father of lies, get behind me, Satan. We've, we've heard so many times where Jesus has done that in scripture, but right here, he doesn't address the devil that way. Instead, he says, I worship God and he is worthy. God is worthy. Don't put God to the test, God is worthy. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. God is worthy. He doesn't rebuke Satan by telling him how, Satan how bad he is. He rebukes Satan by telling him how good God is. And that's a big difference. Jesus knows that the best way to put down the devil is to lift God up. Because he knows that genuine worship is gonna build your faith. Jesus, he's not gonna jump off the temple to show people that God is God. That's ridiculous. He knows that God can save him. Instead, what he's gonna do is trust God enough to say that God is worthy enough to allow himself, Jesus, to be crucified, to be lifted up that way so that the entire world can be saved. Worship builds faith. Satan's temptations here are all based on self-gratification. It's all based on doubting who God is. It's all based on doubting your relationship with God. But Jesus' responses are always the opposite. Place more value on God than yourself. Believe God is present and active. See, the more you declare God's worth, the more worth-ship you give God, the more you'll be able to see that he's actually working all the time. If we demand that God works before we tell him how worthy he is, if we're saying, hey God, you better move, I mean, I, I need you to move so I can tell my friends that you're real and so I can show them, if, if that's the boat you're going in, what you're asking God to do is, hey God, let me control you. Let me command you, God. It doesn't work that way. And God doesn't respond to that very well. And it's actually kind of foolish when we realize that God's plans for our lives are a lot better than the plans we have for ourselves. Why would we try to tell him to do something else? So if the purpose for us being created is to worship, then what is our enemy going to try 
to attack. I'm here to tell you today that he will absolutely attack your worship of him, of worship of God. That's what he did to Jesus, that's what he did to ancient Israel, and that is what he is going to do to you. He wants you to stop your worship, he wants you to fail in your worship. And I'll be honest, I want this church to worship as if our lives depend on it. Because as a church, our lives do depend on it. And what I mean is this, if we don't worship, we are a club, we are a charity, maybe we're a lot of good things, but we are not a church. We're not. There's no point to me being here if we don't worship. I could go to any club and do this. We need to worship because a church is a group of people whose very existence in every action and every thought should prove over and over again the value and the worth of the God that they serve. Now, if we're gonna do that, we need to address some worship myths, myths today. We need to smash some myths. So myth number one is that worship is a 20 minute period of music on a Sunday morning. Now this is a very wrong way of thinking about worship. Because what this tells God is, hey God, you're worthy for 20 minutes a week. And if I go on vacation, God, you, you lose your value for a couple weeks, and then when I come back, you get it back. That's what that's telling God. Worship, this 20 minute period that we call worship, is, is not supposed to be the beginning and end. It's supposed to be a worship accelerant. So that when you try to worship God later in the week and it's hard, you can reflect on the moment of worship you had here and it encourages you. A song that you sang stuck with you, a scripture you heard stuck with you and it helps you later in the week, it's an accelerant. The group experience of everyone worshiping together helps you focus, it helps bring clarity to your worship. That's the goal, it isn't the beginning and end. Now the second myth, and uh, give me a second, I'm I'm gonna paint an imaginary bullseye just for a second. Okay, now, some of you may not like me very much in some of the stuff I'm about to share, but I'm gonna share it because it's true. And um, you can throw things at me later. Wait till I'm in the parking lot, please. Um, But anyway, often the biggest obstacle to worshiping as a church is the church. Yeah, I said it. Here's what I mean. Churches and Christians, and that includes me, we often get into the habit of telling God how worship works. We, t- we tell God. We fall into that habit, right? We tell God what the rules of engagement are. You know, God, we are confident that you only find value in songs that w- we like. So we're gonna sing songs that we like because that's all you can find value in and if we're not singing songs that we like, God, then you're not pleased. God, we, we're, you're not pleased if music doesn't sound perfectly right. It's not on key. Yeah, that's not worship. It's about the quality. It's not about the communication or the relationship. God, we know that. It's all about how good we can make the music. God, we're only gonna deliver messages that really sound good and placate as many people as possible because we wanna keep our attendance up. So God, we're just gonna make sure that no one's offended. You know, and we're not gonna gonna worry about the rest. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. Uh, God, because there's no way that the simple gospel or just speaking what we believe God is telling us to say 
There's no way that that could actually be what you want. Because what would our political influencers say? What would our social media influencers say? God, that can't be right. God, you don't like change. We all know that. You're the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no way a God like that would like change. There's no way you would want us to use new music or new thoughts or new creative concepts or new technology or, or new avenues to worship you. There's no way you would want us to reach out to new people who haven't heard about you. There's no way that you would want us to try anything in all means possible short of sin to reach that one that you died for. There's no way that's true, right? I mean, Jesus only worshiped in places with stained glass windows and Gregorian chant. We know that. I hope you can smell the sarcasm here, but there are times when we say that exact sort of thing to God and don't even realize that we're saying it. There are times when tradition roots us, that tradition gives us strength, and there are times that God will inspire new things and that he will use those new things to influence the world differently. Both are important. The challenge is making sure that the why doesn't get lost in the what. The church needs to live for the why, for the purpose, not for the appearance. We try to look good. There's a reason we invest in cameras. There's a reason we invest in lights. We try to look good. We believe that's important. But without the why, it doesn't matter at all. God, I have the why. Myth number three, I can grow in my worship of God without ever leaving my comfort zone. Man, I so wish that this were true. You have no idea. I wish we could grow in our worship without leaving our comfort zone. So I've shared many times uh, as a, you know, throughout Life Connections and speaking up here, I've shared many times, I am an introvert. I would love nothing better than to sit in some corner somewhere with a cup of coffee, of course, and be reading or typing or, or doing something. That, that's me. So what am I doing up here, speaking to all of you in a job about helping people connect with God and communicating with people? What, what's an introvert doing here? What a mismatch, what is God thinking? It's really strange, isn't it? But see, God didn't call me to be comfortable. I wish he had. That would have made the last couple years of my life much easier. If God had just opened the heavens and said, hey, John, I decided that your goal in life should be be comfortable. Yes, God, thank you. No. What he did was he called me to follow him with all the discomfort and all the joys that that brings. He didn't call me to do what comes naturally. He said, follow me. Let's stick with the topic of worship for a minute. I've noticed something funny about people, and the reason I've noticed it and laugh at it is because it's me to a T, and it's some of you as well. And I, I really resonate with those of you who are gonna identify with this, because seriously, it is me. Some of us, our default setting for a new worship setting, when we come in and we're, you know, we're trying to feel it out and we wanna figure out what worship is, we start worshiping like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
God, I am so excited to be here today. The joy of the Lord is my strength. <laughs> I'm not picking on you. That's my default too, and it was my default for a long time. And if you're new to faith, or if you're unsure about faith, if you're coming in from somewhere else, and you know, you, or maybe you've, you've been hurt by a church, or, this type of worship is totally fine. This is fine, God loves you, God accepts this, this is pleasing, as long as you're thinking about God and you're worshiping him and you're doing this, God will accept you and love you. I'm not saying he won't. But here's what I noticed about myself as an introvert that doesn't express himself very well. I noticed that I would come into church before I was leading worship and I, I, would, I would do this. Oh, the joy of the Lord, I've got that joy in my heart. And then I would go out the door and I would get in my car and I would drive home and my song would come on the radio, right? You know what you're talking about. Some of you are like nodding. Your song comes on the radio and what happens when your song comes on the radio? It usually starts small. It goes like this, right? That's where it starts. And then some of us have a problem and we start doing some of this and somehow you're still steering. I don't really know. Your song's playing. And then some of us go even further. We think, oh, this is such a good song. And you're starting to you know, do all kinds of crazy stuff. And you're starting to think, hey, I have some moves and I'm gonna use them, right? You start to think that way. And what struck me is I was in one of those scenarios and driving out and doing, using moves I don't really have. Um, it struck me that I was having trouble expressing praise to God in a room dedicated to God surrounded by people dedicated to God, singing music dedicated to God. And yet, I would get in my car and be surrounded by barbarian pagans, by the way they drive, um, who are all headed in different directions, who are, none, of, none of them are thinking about God unless they're worried they're gonna meet him in a few minutes. None of them are thinking about God, and yet, in that setting, I can express myself. And it bothered me. And I was like, why is that true? And I realized that I was only willing to worship God when I was comfortable and it wouldn't hurt my image. <laughs> I didn't want to lose my street cred. <laughs> and, and God revealed three things to me through this process. First of all, he revealed, John, you don't have any street cred. <laughs> the second thing is that, and this one was the most important to me, to be honest. The image I was trying to protect, why? Would I protect my image? Because God said that he made me in his image. Why would I be trying to protect mine when they can look at his? I mean, who do you want people to see in your life? Do you really want people to see you or do you wanna see Jesus working through you? Oh Lord, please let people see you and not me. And then the third thing that I realized is that you can't get closer to God by looking at yourself. Generally, people are going to walk towards what they're looking at. Not always, and sometimes people walk into poles, but in general, people are going to walk towards what they're looking at. If you're looking at God, guess where you're going to go? Jesus was a child of God, and he wanted to go where the Father was. Now, this third myth is really hard for some of us. 
Some of you are wrestling with this a little bit already, but even if I'm not a normally a very emotive person, even if you're not, I might be before God. You know why? Because he asked me to be. Yeah, he really does. And I don't like it any more than you do, but he does. He tells us to sing. Psalm 68, 32 says, sing to the Lord all the kingdoms of the earth. It doesn't say people who can carry a tune should sing. Now, I'm gonna add the caveat that they should probably be the ones with the microphones, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying people should sing. Gregorian chant fans, I'm really sorry, but playing instruments is biblical. Shouting is biblical. Psalm 33.3 says that we can worship with new songs, play instruments, raise a joyful shout. Now, please, don't shout random words. Some of you like to shout random words. Don't do that. You know, I just watched the NFL draft, and I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know what? We should try to get this side to draw this side offsides and see if we could get them to yell things that make you jump over here, but we're not gonna do that. Um, that's not the goal. Don't shout random things, but if God is filling you and you wanna say amen, then say amen. If you wanna say a whoop or a yeah or something like that, I might join you. I won't condemn you. Clapping is biblical. Psalm 47 tells us to clap our hands on beats two and four and shout to God with joy. Okay, it just says to clap our hands, and some of you clap on one and three, which is why you didn't laugh at the joke. But anyway, um, it says to clap our hands, but being on beat is more fun. Just ask our drummers. Um, raising our hands is biblical. First Timothy confirms that we should be able to lift our hands without wrath or contentiousness. It means you should be able to lift your hands and not feel bad. You should be able to lift your hands and not feel like someone's gonna be angry with you or, or have a problem with you. That's in the Bible. And you know, there's two, two distinct times when people lift their hands, have you noticed? If somebody puts a gun to your back, what do you do? And if you score the touchdown, what do you do? In honesty, in all the years of hearing different people's descriptions of worship and what it is, I think this summarizes it. Because when you surrender to God, you win. When you surrender, you have victory. What an incredible statement of worship. When my kids run to me this way, what's that saying to me? Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I'm glad you're home. Daddy, pick me up. Daddy, my boo-boo hurts. Pick me up. When we run to Jesus this way, what is it telling him? Jesus, I love you. God, I need you. Please enter my circumstances. Please lift me up because I've fallen. Pick me up. The point is this. If you've been uncomfortable expressing yourself to God in worship, here's your biblical permission slip today. There it is. I'm not gonna condemn you for it. It's biblical. It might be uncomfortable for you, but God is excited for you to grow into it. Now, he's still gonna love you. If this is what you do for the rest of your life, God will love you and accept you, and he will be in your life and active and moving as long as you are worshiping him. This is fine. But what an opportunity for you. Say, God, here I am. Pick me up. It's in the Bible. Don't blame me. That's what the Bible says to do. See, God, in his wisdom, he knew that introverts like me would need instructions on how to do this because I'm not gonna do this naturally. 
He knew he had to write it down for someone like me so that I would read it and say, oh, it's okay to worship with your hands up. So when we worship like this, we're saying that we value God more than we value ourselves. We are valuing God more than our own comfort. We would rather have God without bread than bread without God. That's what we're saying. We would rather be present in the kingdom of God than have the keys to all the kingdoms of the world. We would rather live our lives in a way that assumes God is present and active than to challenge God to show up and meet our demands. Satan will tempt us to think otherwise. He'll try to subvert that, but when you worship, it will drive him out. When we worship like this, we are gonna reflect our surrender to God. We take the life that he has given us and we give it right back to him just as Jesus dealt in the wilderness. All those things that Jesus could have done to meet his own needs, to provide for his own future, he says, no, I'm offering it back to God because he is worthy. That is an act of worship. When you pick your hands up, then God can pick you up and your light will be reflected to your communities and friends and families in ways you never thought of. So, My question that I want to leave you with today is do you need God this badly or do you need God this badly? I need him this badly. And I'll just hope with you because we will fail. All of us will fail. Israel failed. We will all fail so many times in our lives. We will fail. We will fall. We will stumble. We will make mistakes. It's my hope, my prayer that we will not fail when we worship, that we will not fail in the area of worship. Because Israel showed us how to fail, but Jesus shows us how to succeed. Let's pray.